and have a seat. Again, just want to welcome you. Thanks so much for those of you who are here at Cedar Run with us. It's so good to see you and worship with you. And to those of you joining online, welcome. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill and very excited to dig into God's word with you. But before we do that, I want to invite the Leemkow family. Uh, they're going to open us up by reading scripture and praying for us. Come on up. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the love and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Let us pray. Father God, as we enter into this time of worship through the study of your holy and perfect word, we ask that you would be with Pastor Ellen as he speaks your word. We ask that you would focus our minds and our hearts to hear and understand your message for us this afternoon. Father, thank you for the provision of your word, written and living. We thank you for you for your son and the gift of salvation that is only possible through this sacrifice on the cross. In your name, amen. Thank you guys, great job. Thank you so much for reading um, from Ephesians for us. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open that to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, so in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 8, and we'll read it um, in just a little bit. Um, I want to start with this question. Here it is. All right, pretty, pretty simple question. What is your name? What is your name? Now, all of us, we have a name, yes, there's a simple answer to that simple question. But when it comes to questions like, who am I? What defines me? What is my identity? The answer to that question, at least the sole level, honest, raw answer to that question is I actually think a lot more complicated than we realize. Here's another question we can think of. What do you think 
is the biggest obstacle you face in your life when it comes to your joy and your growth in your relationship with Jesus? Like, what's the biggest obstacle to that? Or, or if you're here or you're tuning in online and you're not a Christian or you don't believe in Jesus or you don't believe in God, similar question to you. What would you say is the biggest obstacle for you when it comes to just your general joy and happiness in life? Maybe we would say something like, you know, you know I think a common answer to that might be like, well, good and, and bad habits, right? So if you're a Christian, maybe you would say, well, you know, if I could just be more consistent in reading the Bible and praying and doing things and being, uh, being with Jesus, then I, yeah, I think... I would grow in my joy and my relationship with Jesus. Or if you're not a Christian, maybe you would have a similar answer. It just wouldn't be Christian things. Like this is all of us, right? We would say, well, if I could be more consistent with exercise and eating well and managing my money well and, and doing those kinds of things, then I, I think maybe I would grow in my happiness and my joy in life. Or, or maybe we would say, not because of greed, but more because of survival, like, like more money, right? I mean, if I could just have more money, I spend so much of my life trying to manage money and worrying about money and earning money. And if I could just have a little bit more wiggle room there, then, then yeah, I think life would be a little bit better. I'd be less anxious and I'd probably be happier. Maybe we would talk about relationships. If I... I could just have some close friends, if I could find a spouse, or if my marriage could improve, or if I could get rid of these toxic relationships, then, then I think I would grow in my joy and happiness. And there's truth to all of those statements, but I think there's all sorts of things that we would point to that if we had more or less of this or that, that we think we would be happier, more joyful in life. Now, the Limkow family, they just read for us from Ephesians chapter 6, right? Classic armor of God passage from Paul. Uh, Paul said something really interesting in verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said this. He said, we, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Like, we don't wrestle against physical things. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so in other words, Paul is telling us that much of what we wrestle against, much of what opposes our growth, our maturity, our joy, and our happiness in Christ, it's not physical, but it's spiritual. Like spiritual forces of evil. What does that mean, right? Well, well today what I want to do is I want to teach you through the scriptures that one of the primary ways that these spiritual forces that Paul is referring to in Ephesians 6, one of the primary ways that they oppose you, one of the primary ways that they get in the way of your joy and your growth in Christ is by giving you 
a false name. By convincing you of a false identity. By persuading you of a story about your life that is untrue. And that is the biggest obstacle that you face when it comes to your joy and your happiness and your growth in life. Regardless if you're a Christian or not. And so I I realize that might sound really odd to you, spiritual forces of darkness. So I'd rather Jesus teach us to help us to understand more as we hit the Gospel of Luke. Now, last week, we jumped back into this sermon series. We're in part 29, and we're in chapter 8. So I'm getting a little concerned about how long this is going to go. But of the Gospel of Luke, remember that this Gospel of Luke is a historical account of the life and the teachings of Jesus. All right? And so last week, we said that we're about to study three different encounters that Jesus has with people. And in all three of those encounters, Jesus asks... A very simple, yet loaded, probing question. Right? These are not questions designed for Jesus to gather data because he doesn't know. These are questions that are designed to get the person, and, and yes, to get us, to examine ourselves through answering the question. So last week, as we studied Jesus calming the storm, if you were here, The question that Jesus posed to his disciples was this, where is your faith? Really simple but probing question. And today, the question that Jesus is going to ask is, what is your name? And as we'll see, the answer to that question, I think, can be the difference between flourishing in your faith or floundering in your faith. So let's read it. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Real fast as I'm turning there, Jamie, do you want me to change mics? I I hear it going in and out a bit and y'all messing around, but nope. Great. Luke chapter 8. We're going to read verses 26 to 39 in Luke chapter 8. It'll be on the screen whether you're here or online. So it says this, Luke 8, starting in verse 26, it says, Then they, that's Jesus and the disciples. So remember, they're on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus just calmed the storm. So now they're sailing, calm waters. And they sail to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So this is, they're going from the western edge of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern edge to this area called the Decapolis, which is this area of ten cities. Okay, Deca. All right, you get it. All right, the Decapolis. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, he knew exactly who Jesus was. I beg you, do not torment me. He also knew exactly the kind of authority Jesus had. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, these demons. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. 
but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asks him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That's the, the demons. Verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And the demons begged him to let them enter these, the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. One of the more odd stories in scripture. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, their herd had just drowned. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. So throughout the whole Decapolis, they're, they're telling everyone this. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home to the Decapolis and, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, one of the more odd, mystifying topics in scripture is this topic of demon possession. All right, and I'm sure many of us have seen the Hollywood depictions of this that are really scary and you shouldn't watch them. But allow me to help us all to understand a bit more uh, the way in which our enemy, our adversary, Satan, works. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that this is kind of where the true battle is. The primary way that our enemy opposes us, opposes you, listen, is by trying to hijack your identity. And he will hijack someone's identity through what the Bible calls possession or through deception. And I want to talk about both. All right, we have many accounts in Scripture of demon possession where it seems as if an, an evil spirit has taken possession of someone's body, where it's controlling their body and their mind. It's, it's taken over their identity. We see this in our text Jesus asked the man, what is your name? And he, the demons answered, Legion. That was a demon's name. We see that in verse 30. They take over the identity of the person. And, and this topic is obviously really mysterious, and it, it seems out of this world, and no one really fully understands it. Throughout my ministry, personally, um, I, I believe that I have encountered one person who is experiencing this. And here's the best way that I, I can describe it, okay? Um, it's not how Hollywood depicts it, all right? Someone who is possessed by a demon, I want you to understand this, is someone who actually has very high knowledge and understanding of who God is and what the gospel is. 
The demons know who God is. God. They know the character of God. They know the attributes of God and who God is, okay? Look at our text in verse 28. In verse 28, right, Jesus comes on the scene. He's encountered by the demon-possessed man. What does the man say? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? No one from over there knew that Jesus was the son of God. He didn't know that from a humanly perspective. The demons know who Jesus is. The demons know what kind of authority Jesus has. Microphone change. They know the kind of authority that Jesus has. All right, so I want you to just think about this for a second. They have good theology. All right, James 2, 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's good theology. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So here's the thing. The demons, they believe the word of God. They just hate it. And they know who God is, but they hate him. And they oppose him. Anytime someone knows who God is and has a full understanding of what God is about and what his word says, and they hate it and they mock it, that's demonic. Now, I don't believe that today demon possession is very common. I don't believe that Satan must go to that sort of measure today in order to hijack someone's identity. I believe what is more common today is for our enemy to simply influence us through deception. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the, oh, I guess that was the 19th century, said, Cases of bodily possession by Satan, like this depicted in Luke 8, are, to say the least, very rarely met within modern times. He's writing this in 1879. (laughs) Yet we must not, on this account, forget that the devil is continually exercising a fearful power over many hearts and souls. If you look in scripture, the primary way that the enemy exerts his influence is through lying to you about your identity. Go to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, first man and first woman. What is their identity? They are image bearers of God. Image bearers of God. Then the serpent comes on the scene. What does he begin to do? He deceives them. He deceives Adam and Eve in such a way that entices them to believe that they would be better apart from God, that it would be better to bear their own image instead of bear the image of God, which led to the first sin. That wasn't possession. That was deception. Or or think about Jesus in the garden. Back in Luke 4, we studied this, right? What was the thing that the enemy kept on saying to Jesus in Luke 4? He kept on saying, if you're the son of God, then do this or do that. Right? The enemy wanted Jesus to question his identity as the son of God. Not possession, deception, which Jesus didn't fall for. So the, the word for Satan in Scripture, right, the, the, the definition of that is the accuser, the slanderer, the deceiver. This is how the enemy works. 
by telling you lies about yourself that are untrue. And here is the battle that Paul says in Ephesians 6 that every single one of us are in the middle of right now as we live our lives. We have an enemy who every single day is telling you an untrue story about who you are, who has given you a false name and seeks to deceive you into believing it. And this is, I believe, the number one obstacle for all of us when it comes to our joy and maturity in Christ. Number one obstacle. And so here's what I want to do. I want to help all of us to, to, to grow in our ability to, to know when this is happening to us and when it's happening to others. And I believe that our passage today is going to help us uh, with that by giving us four characteristics of what the influence of the enemy looks like in someone. All right, but before I give you these four characteristics, what I want to do is I want to give you two examples of people that this is happening to. I want to tell you two stories of, of two real people, people that I have personally met and counseled in ministry. Um, none of these people are at Grace Hill Church, and I'm going to use fake names, so don't even try to guess. But just people that I've encountered in ministry that I think are going to be good examples of this, because I believe that for us to understand this, we're going to need to see how this is playing out in the stories of real people. All right, so I'm going to introduce you to two people, fake names, all right? We're going to, we're going to talk about a, a lady named Sarah and a guy named Mike. Let me give you some quick vignettes of their life. Let's start with Sarah. Sarah grew up in a Christian home. Great parents, still together. Always took church very seriously all the way her young age through high school she was really involved with her faith into college remained involved in the church out of college got married has a few kids her family is extremely committed to church serving in the church she's extremely committed to her faith most people would look to sarah and say that that right there is the picture of a mature follower of jesus and in many ways she is the thing with sarah though is that Secretly, every single day, she struggles with debilitating stress and anxiety. I mean, if you like took her blood work, the cortisol levels would be like through the roof all the time. And the reason for it is because Sarah is a perfectionist, like so many of us. But everywhere Sarah goes, she's got this constant voice in her head saying, not good enough. Your kids don't behave well enough. Your house isn't clean enough. Your faith, that prayer wasn't eloquent enough. Everywhere she goes, there's a voice in her head saying, not good enough, not good enough. Every relationship she has, she believes that that other person is disappointed in her. And it's constant for her. Constant. If Sarah were to answer the question, what is your name? Of course she would say Sarah, but deep down inside, the voice says, disappointing. That's your name. That's who you are. You're disappointing. 
It's not possession, it's deception. Now, Mike, Mike um, did not grow up as a Christian. He grew up in a home uh, where his, uh, his parents were culturally Catholic. So they went to mass every once in a while. Um, but they were really, they weren't present in the home, really concerned about their careers. So Mike, he went to Catholic school from uh, kindergarten all the way through high school, rebelled a lot. He was always in trouble, always getting suspended, always getting lectured by church officials about, you know, all the bad things that he was doing. So by the time he graduated from high school, he vowed he would have nothing to do with religion ever again. And he started living a pretty destructive lifestyle, got involved in a lot of substance abuse, got in trouble with the law. He works odd jobs to make money, makes actually pretty good money doing it. Last time I talked to Mike, we were, he found out that I was a pastor, and um, he said to me, it's exactly what he said to me, he said, hey, if I ever walked into a church, I would catch on fire. And I said to him, just joking with him, I was like, man, you know, I've been a pastor for 13 years, and to this day, I have never seen someone spontaneously combust in church. I've never seen it occur. And he goes, well, I would be the first one. If I walked into a church, there is, with what I have done, there is no way that anyone would accept me, accept me and neither would God. So, Mike, what is your name? Too far gone. I've already made a mess of everything. Why stop now? Too far gone. It's not possession. It's deception. And so I have four characteristics of how the enemy influences us from our text today. And I want us to see how this happens in the life of of Sarah and Mike and how it could happen in our lives too. Where it's not demonic possession that we're on guard against, but it is deception. So let's do the four. Characteristic number one of the enemy's influence and deception of us. Here it is. Number one, it's uncontrollable. If you look at our text in verse 29, we see that the the people tried to control this man who had the demon possession, right? They tried to shackle him down, to chain him up, and every single time he would break those apart, and there was no controlling this. We cannot control what the enemy does. We cannot control his attempts to deceive us or influence us. So when it comes to Sarah, there is nothing that she can do. There was nothing that she could do to calm the anxiety down, to stop seeing the imperfections all around her, to stop feeling the shame that would constantly come with it, to stop seeing herself as nothing but disappointing. It was constant. It didn't matter how perfect she got. And it didn't matter how hard she tried to not think those things. Nothing she could do could chain down that beast. This lie that she believes about herself. And and I'm wondering how how many people here today and how many people watching online relate with Sarah. That the enemy has you believing something about yourself, and it's a beast. Maybe you're like Mike, and you just believe that, man, my, my past, my past means that God wants nothing to do with me. Or if people ever found out about the things that I've done, they would leave me in a heartbeat. 
Or maybe you can't go one day without comparing yourself to another person and feeling completely inadequate and like a failure, right? This is uncontrollable. These are not the things that you can just change about yourself with a little more effort. It doesn't work like that. So that's number one, it's uncontrollable. Number two, characteristic number two is this, it leads to destructive behavior. So in our text, right, we have this odd occurrence, verses 32 and 33, where Jesus commands the pigs, I'm sorry, the demons to go from the man to the pigs, and the pigs rush off the side of the cliff and drown themselves. That's weird. But I think Jesus was trying to, give a point here that the influence of the enemy always leads to destruction and death that the enemy is fundamentally against life first peter chapter 5 verse 8 says your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour so in sarah's life This had gotten to the point to where when her kids or her husband do or say anything that makes her feel like she looks bad, she lashes out at them in ways she never thought she would. She doesn't understand where that's coming from. She internally judges most people she's around. So not only is she fixated on her imperfections, but the imperfections of others. And so this has begun to be destructive to her relationships, especially her marriage, not to mention her joy in life. And when it comes to Mike, Mike has just fully embraced the destructive lifestyle. It's his way of coping of what he's become in his life. Let's just medicate all the shame with more shameful things. So just like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, right? The enemy always entices with promises of life. And yet, he is nothing. He's about nothing but death. All right, so number one, it's uncontrollable. Number two, it leads toward destructive behavior. Characteristic number three of the influence of the enemy is this. It conceals our God-given gifts and abilities. It's fascinating how in our passage today, the way that Luke describes this man after Jesus had set him free from the the demons. It says in verse 35 that the man was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Then it also says that he wanted to stay with Jesus and be one of his disciples, of course. See, the enemy's goal in your life is to make you less joyful and therefore less useful for the Lord. And we are the most useful for the Lord when we have the greatest joy in the Lord. And God has given you, each of you, all of us, gifts and abilities and passions that are to be used for his glory and your joy. But when we are distracted by the need to medicate and manage the lies of the enemy, then there's no time or energy left for the things that the Lord has for us. See, the thing with Sarah is that she's so fun to be around. She can be such a fun person. And she's an amazing listener and insightful. And when she can be fully focused on another person, 
an incredible counselor. But most of the time, she holds back because of this lie that she believes about herself, that God and most people around her are actually disappointed in her. And so that gift of being able to counsel and care for other people on Sarah's part is, is rarely used. And Mike, you know, my first impression of Mike when I met him was his ability to walk into a room, kind of take control of the relational dynamics, make everyone laugh and make everyone feel welcome and seen. I could tell that Mike is wired to be a natural leader, yet he doesn't lead anywhere. And I don't know much about Mike anymore, but one of the things I often think is, Lord, what could you do with this guy if you grabbed a hold of his life, redeemed him, and set him free to use his gifts and abilities? It'd be amazing. But he's caught in the lie that he's too far gone. So demonic influence, right? It's, it's uncontrollable. It leads to destructive behavior. And it conceals your God-given gifts and abilities. And here's characteristic number four. And that's this, that only God can set you free. What we need to learn from our text this morning is this, that Jesus Christ has complete authority over the enemy. We do not even see these demons question Jesus' authority when he comes on the scene. You can tell they are scared. They are asking him for permission to do certain things. They know who has authority. So we cannot control the deception of the enemy. Our only option is to go to Jesus because he is the only one with the authority to do so. Because the reality is this. We serve a God who loves to change names. Right? We, we serve the God that told Abram, your name is now Abraham. Because I have solely by grace chosen you. I'm going to raise a great nation out of you. And your name is now father of many nations. A God who told Saul, you will not be defined by your attempts to eradicate the church. No, your name is Paul. And you're now going to go multiply the church. And this same God wants to change Sarah's name. And he wants to change Mike's name. And he wants to change yours. But how? In response to our text today, what do we do? Because all of us, whether we're ready to admit it or not, in some ways we relate with Sarah or Mike. And the enemy seeks to deceive all of us into believing a false name. And so here's the thing about today that's going to be the most challenging. I don't have an individual application for you today. What do I mean by that, right? I don't have steps that you can take all by yourself where you can begin to deal with this in secret. The truth is the only way to combat the lies of the enemy, to reject the false names, to invite Jesus to set us free, is to do it together. Um, I love this. Mark chapter 5. Um, we read the same story about Jesus visiting the Decapolis with his disciples and encountering this demon-possessed man. And two chapters later, in the Gospel of Mark, okay, in chapter 7, Luke doesn't record this, 
But in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus makes a second trip shortly after this first one to the Decapolis, across the Sea of Galilee. See, in the first trip to the Decapolis, right, if we look at our, in Luke 8, in verse 39, Jesus set this man free, and what did he do? He commanded him to stay and go declare to everyone what God had done for him. But remember, the people of the Decapolis, if you look at it in verse 37, were not fans of Jesus. They were afraid of him, they rejected him, and sent him on his way. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, at least two chapters later, Jesus returns to those same people. I just want you to read what happens. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. says this, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. All right, so now we're back. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. That's a change. Do, do you see the change from... Mark chapter 5, Jesus, get out of here. To Mark chapter 7, Jesus is back. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Fafa, I didn't practice that one. That is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The only conclusion that I can draw from this is that this man in our text today from Jesus' first visit, who was set free from demon possession, went and told his story. And by the time Jesus returned to the Decapolis, that place went from rejecting Jesus to now running to Jesus and, look, bringing people to Jesus. There is something powerful that can occur when we tell our true stories and bring people to Jesus. So so what Sarah needs is a church family where it's normal to tell our stories to voice things that make us anxious, to go after one another in order to bring one another to Jesus. Right? The only way Sarah will come to a place of rejecting the lie of the enemy is if the body of Christ, that's the hands and feet of Jesus, that's you and me, actually recognize the lie in her, help her to see that she's not alone, that so many of us struggle right alongside of her of the same thing, and that God has a different name for her. Perfectly righteous, right? Child of God. And just like Jesus sent that man he set free to go declare his story into the Decapolis, that same God is going to send Sarah to do the same thing. To go tell her story. To go after other people. To bring them to Jesus. To use the gifts and the abilities that God has given her for his glory and her joy. You know what Mike needs? 
Mike needs a church experience where he realizes, wait, there are people here who are just like me. I can see evidence that I am not too far gone because that person wasn't too far gone. God actually does want a relationship with me, reconciliation with me. God's people actually want a relationship with me, and they know me. And Mike will only be able to see this if he encounters people who are willing to tell their stories and tell what Jesus had done for them. And to bring Mike to Jesus where he can be set free. And then he can be used to go lead people with the gifts that God has given him to Jesus too. We fight the deception of the enemy by going after one another, telling our true stories, and bringing people to Jesus. That's how we fight it. And that is the battle. We don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against the spiritual forces of darkness that seek to lie to us every single day. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to stop right there because I, I think what we need in response to this is each of us, I think we need some time with Jesus. And so, Nick, if you guys, guys want to come on up, you can. But here's my question for you today if you're, if you're listening to this, and that's this. How does the enemy deceive you about who you are? What is the thing, the lie, the destructive habits or thoughts that you want to try to bring under control, but you know it's uncontrollable? What destructive behaviors are you determined to conquer all by yourself? You know it's not going to work. What is concealing the gifts and the abilities that God has given you for the expressed purpose of his glory, the building up of the church? And your joy. Because here's, here's my exhortation to all of us today. Is, is that what I want you to do is if you're, if you're here and you grab the communion cup in the lobby, I want you to take that cup and you can go get one in a second if you don't have one. But I want you to take that communion cup and I want you to spend some time meditating and praying. And I want you to meditate on what that cup represents and the name that this cup says that you have. The broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus declare that you are a redeemed, righteous, brand new child of God and nothing else. And when we can have faith in the name that God has given us, It enables us to have courage to take this courageous step of coming to Jesus with the things only he can set us free from. But here's where it takes courage. Coming to Jesus means coming to his body. Brothers and sisters, and telling your story sharing your struggle and letting other people come after you and remind you of who you are. Your name is not disappointing. It's a child of God.
Listen, Grace Hill, none of us will authentically grow in Christ. I mean really grow in Christ without each other. I know our culture tries to tell us differently, and we want to so badly believe it can be different than that. It's just not what God made. He chose something different, that we would do it together. There is no growth in Christ without doing it together, period. If you're here and you're tuning in online maybe and you don't believe in Jesus, you're not sure what you believe in, today I want to bring you to Jesus. And so if you're here, don't worry about the communion cup right now. That's just bread and juice for right now. I want you to take the time and examine your own heart today and ask the question, do I want to be in relationship with God? Because listen, he wants to. Your name is not too far gone. Your name has not had too many chances already. And all that is required is that you realize your need for Jesus and his grace and his forgiveness. And you have faith in that, in him. There's literally nothing in your past that would exclude you from the love of God. You are an image bearer of God and he loves you and desires for you to be saved. And so I just encourage you, take this time right now, examine your own heart. And if you want to come to Christ, and if you do, come find me. I'd love to, to pray with you right here and right now or, come, or with someone that you came with. If you're online, email me, Alan, A-L-L-A-N, at gracehillchurch.com. I'd love to pray with you and walk you through this. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray right now. And wherever you're at, if you have that communion cup, I want you to meditate on the name that that cup says you have. And then my question for you is that what will that name give you courage to do? Let's pray. God, I pray for every one of us. God, we realize from the scriptures that the actual battle that we are fighting it's not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. And the main weapon that the enemy uses against us is shame. It's this belief that God, you've given up on us. It's this belief that others have given up on us. It's this belief that we will never be good enough. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has declared that to be a lie. And he has made a way that we can boldly enter your courts, God, with you as our Father, with certainty that we'll be accepted because of the cross. God, may that truth give us courage to fight this battle together. And God, may we as a church have the courage to reject the lie that we can grow in Christ and do this Christian life all by ourselves. 
And so God, I pray for Grace Hill. I pray that we would be a church that is the body of Christ. And that we would be people who would go after one another and remind each other of who we are. And Lord, may we grow for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Take two or three minutes right now just to be with the Lord.